Hello, and welcome back to the James Mason Podcast, where we talk about James Mason movies and basically nothing else. I'm one of your hosts, Corey, and with me, I've got Liam. In the words of Ernest Gubbins, whether you do it or not, don't ever forget how good you are. And Mitch. Yes, I would like to buy a dozen donuts. Yes. <laughs> Bringing the heat with the James Mason. Okay, jokes aside, hello. Yes, they made another one. Often forgotten installments, franchises. You know the deal. Um, the general really did us, huh? It did. We're back to being a. We're a James Mason podcast again. We're a fifties movie podcast again, and we're a musical podcast again, all with a single roll of the dice. And, yeah. and as we've established, you got to take those rolls of the dice. And it was all my doing. And we're also a three-hour-long movie podcast. That's a first again. by a landslide. Oh my gosh! Yes. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's almost like after all that talk last season about oh, the Genero giving us Bud the Chud and giving us uh, for, I guess Fright Night Two isn't a good example, but a lot of even a one Bud the Chud out there. That's yeah. enough. Where the the film Genero then swung around and said, "Okay, <laughs> you guys are complaining about that. Here's a musical from the '50s that's three hours long. Ask How does that feel? You shall receive." And what we got was a prestige film. Say what you want. Like I think that this movie feels shorter than Chud and and. Uh, well, look. Here's the thing. Fright it's Night funny. Part Two. It's funny to talk about the length because that's all we have joke wise all we have is the length it's a big long big boy movie it was so long that the warner brothers decided it was too long and we decided to do our boy george kukor a solid and watch the full full uncut film uh well like it's still within cut. reason within yeah. reason yeah i mean what you're looking at is kind of like one of the examples of like the holy grail of cinema what happened to those 27 minutes that uh you know jack warner cut out Famously, this hour has 27 minutes. It didn't feel like it. (laughs) Felt like a lot more than that. Okay. Oh, dear. I know what you're thinking. You read the title of this podcast, listener, and you said, huh, wonder why they're not doing the 2017 one or the 2018 one, which is the year that movie came out. And uh, I'll answer that question with another question. Why not? Huh? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So I also know what you're thinking, Lizard at Home. Why didn't they watch the one with Barbara Streisand? She's pretty cool. Or I'll tell uh, you why. <laughs> Frederick Martin. Jeff Bridges. Why Is not? Jeff Bridges in that movie? He might be. I don't know. Oh, no. I think it's Chris Christopherson. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. He's definitely in that. It's I mean, Chris Jeff Bridges might be there. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I think it was before <laughs> his time. Jeff Bridges was in a different Barbara Streisand movie. I mean, wasn't Jeff Bridges in fucking. Uh, what year did uh, the last picture show come out? That was also the seventies, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's in some. In he's in some good stuff. I like him. Okay. This is not Jeff Bridges' cast. This is the James Mason podcast, and we're here to talk about James Mason, which means we're here to talk about Judy Garland, which means we can only be talking about A Star Is Born from nineteen fifty four, directed by George Cukor, and that's all the rhyming I've got on hand. Uh. I'm going to run through a quick little cast. Going to keep it brief. And uh, we're going to try to situate ourselves contextually here. Because if you go look at our episode list, you'll notice that we don't do this kind of thing very often. By this kind of thing, I mean something that's approximately uh, 65 years old. So we're going to get comfortable. We're going to sort ourselves out. And then we're going to get into it. It's not a big deal. But 
A Star is Born, 1954. Directed by George Cukor. The screenplay is by Moss Hart with a story from William Wellman and Robert Carson based on A Star is Born that has credits with William Wellman, Robert Carson, Dorothy Parker, and Alan Campbell because they simply couldn't get enough writing credits. There is cinematography by Sam Leavitt, edited by Fulmar Blangstead, which is the best name we've had for any credit on this show ever. Fulmar Blankstead, really, really good. Where's uh, Fulmar Blankstead? Give me <laughs> Fulmar Blankstead. <laughs> Get him on the horn. I need him right now. <laughs> and, My asses. Uh, oh, he's the only GP I trust. <laughs> uh, he got me through the war. <laughs> and um, the music is by Ray Heindorf, which is a pretty good name as well. Um, as for the cast, all stars, naturally, as one of them is being born right in front of us. Judy Garland, James Mason, Jack Carson, Charles Bickford, Tommy Noonan, Amanda Blake, Lucy Marlowe, Irving Bacon, Hazel Shermit, Nancy Culp, Frank Puglia, and Strother Martin. Those are the credits I've been given before me, and those are the ones I'm going to read. So... You might know a star is born for that meme where Bradley Cooper is sitting in that truck. And he says, hold on. Wait a second. And Lady Gaga says, why? What's up? And he's like, I just wanted to look at you again. And I'll tell you right now, that is in this movie. There's a lot more. <laughs> Bradley Cooper is in here. <laughs> yeah. Makes a surprise I, cameo. I, I just wanted to look at you. <laughs> and so um, without further ado, old movie context guy is here. Hell yeah. Mitch, who's he? Could you, who's he? Mitch, could you help us out a little bit? Yeah. You seem to know James Mason personally. You brought him with you, so. Yeah, he's, he's actually just here in the room. Um, yeah, where to begin? I mean, um, the original, like, you, you could make arguments that, like, the original version of The Star is Born wasn't even made in 1937, but it was made in 1932, and it was actually directed by George Cukor, and it's called What Price Hollywood? Um, very similar story about like a boozing director who meets a waitress and one star rises while another one falls. Um, and then the one in 1937 came out with Frederick March and Janet Grainer. And uh, Kukor was actually offered the credit to direct that film in 1937. George Kukor has been around for a long time, or he was around for a long time. He died in the 80s and he started directing in the 30s. Um, but he passed on that. Because I guess he had already done the other one in 1932. <laughs> been and, there, yeah, he had been there. It was it was territory he had done, and uh, he, again, like he made his bones like working with guys like Ernst Lubitsch, and the two men hated each other, and he he made a bunch of uh, really fabulous movies, um, and was kind of an old dependable director who came in to replace people. He was famously replaced when he it with Gone with the Wind. Actually, he he started directing it and then was like thrown out pretty quick by uh david o selznitz um or selznick and uh yeah so again george kukor really interesting director who i don't think gets like the credit he deserves always and uh this is one of his sort of uh crowning uh, achievements i think for sure um but the circumstances surrounding this film's production are kind of unfortunate like we alluded to it earlier where like there's 27 minutes that are missing and that's because I believe it was Jack Warner at the time who um, pretty much they saw the film and they didn't like it. And uh, I don't think the American public had really warmed to it that much. And it was very long. So they they cut out a lot of it and trimmed it down. 
and that is all lost to time and so i believe the cut that we watched is the one from 1984 or 88 and uh it was when sort of um a film restorationist went through and they found they found like the the soundtrack for it but they only had like footage from the rushes so periodically you see those things uh in with this movie and you you just sort of get an impression of what it might have been um oh but that what that or, is or what it was uh yeah yeah it was cut to it was cut to ribbons that's what that's that's what that's all about so it's kind of sad uh to see that um but there's a lot going on in this movie for sure i think i think in many ways also it's it's sort of sad seeing judy garland in it because i mean in many ways uh norman Maine's character has a lot to do with you know her real life and her struggles li- living judy garland may as well be playing herself yeah yeah like living and working in hollywood it's a deeply sort of cynical story and again george cukor had a had a difficult run in hollywood and was very jaded when he was fired from gone with the wind he was walking down the uh the studio lot and people weren't even talking to him and he said to himself now i know who will come to my funeral um christ yeah uh and he was also he was also sort of closeted but sort of um like the the go-to guy for i guess like gay subculture in hollywood like he wasn't like the go-to guy for dudes if you will no no like he like he i don't know like he like he like entertained a lot and sort of for gay like subculture in hollywood like he was the he was the guy um so yeah he was also sort of an, an outsider in a lot of ways uh and i think he he had sort of a jaded experience in Hollywood because of that and the ideas at the time. So this is a really cynical film. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, life experience thrown into it that makes it an interesting movie. Can I make two quick points about George Cukor that I think are important and also uh, Liam might laugh at at least one of them? <laughs> I'm already laughing at what I think one of them is, but we'll see. Uh, well, I'd like to tell everybody that his middle name is Dewey. <laughs> that is awesome. That well, it's, 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 it's Dewey because he's named after a Spanish American war hero. He was born in 1899, and it was, George Dewey was a, a hero of the Spanish American War. Well, there you go. Also, so I'm on his Wikipedia page, right? And I don't mean to take the wind slightly out of the sails of all the serious things you just said, but if you take the picture of George Cukor in the picture of David O. Selznick further down and put them next to each other, you could just tell me it was pictures of the Safdie brothers and I would believe you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> David O. Selznick. If you clean them up a bit, toss them in some suits, you're good. Consider it done. Um, okay, so we've got a little bit of background. We'll get into more potentially production stuff as we go along. There's a lot to get to. Jello's excited. You know, things are happening. And so what I'd like to do from here is just get a quick sense of what everybody's familiarity was with A Star is Born, because mine is the easiest. It's none. I had the gist of the plot. Remember when the latest one came out? That's basically it. Liam, what about you? Mine was uh, the newest one. When it came out, I got excited for it because uh, despite never having even heard of the other ones uh it was just a big movie that that bradley cooper won people were talking about it the trailer was popping up everywhere before youtube videos and stuff and uh and then when it came out people were saying how good it was and so i i I really wanted to see it Uh, i like lady gaga as a musician so i wanted to uh see her in a movie 
I she's, like Bradley she's Cooper. Be fire in the new Gucci movie by uh, Ridley yeah. Scott. Oh, I'm so yeah. excited. Hell yeah, dude. Anyway, yeah, I'm so excited. Keep going. We're all so just yeah. stoked um, for House of Gucci in this yeah. goddamn chat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so I, I wanted to see it, and I meant to get out to the theater, and uh, it just it didn't end up happening. Um, I was really close though. So when it came out, like on DVD and. Uh, blu-ray and stuff um i watched it online like pretty shortly after it hit home video and i really really loved it i got totally invested i loved the music in it um i really like musicals that have that the music weaved in naturally like sing street or once um or school of rock and so i really like that (laughs) aspect to it um i just thought it was a really compelling story that surprised me a, a, a bunch of times i really liked the acting in it all around and uh i was just really excited by that movie um so i was excited to check out this one for that same reason just to see a story that i, I really liked i wanted to see it get retold again so i was excited for that and mitch what about you i have a feeling you were slightly more familiar than the two of us. uh so i actually haven't seen the modern one but i've seen every other one except for like the 32 version that i alluded to so i've seen the one with Fred- frederick mark march and janet gainer in, in 1937 and it's very similar to this one but this one kind of expands on it and i think it's, it has more to say and i've seen the one from the 70s as well with uh christopherson and and and, and streisand uh, so I've had I've had some experience, and I've also seen this movie once before. It was me who put this on the general list. It, it was, was me, Austin. <laughs> the it was great me. Reveal. Now I have to say I forgot how long this movie was before I before I put it on the list. But nevertheless, I I, I really like long movies. So you know, it was a good romp. I want to make clear I have nothing against long movies. It's just that we do a weekly podcast and have jobs and it's hard to fit in a three-hour movie sometimes Corey's just not at the the place in his life for that right now well uh, once we once we all retire and we're still doing this podcast it'll be all three-hour <laughs> movies we'll get back to it but we're just gonna be next week's gonna be like and now we're watching cleopatra and it's like oh christ okay we could actually i mean there were cleopatras before it oh don't i know it um or ben-hur <laughs> ben-hur done that uh, we could we could watch the new one if we wanted to just disappoint ourselves. Ben, her I barely know her. <laughs> um, okay. okay. Um, so let's let's keep this train on on track here for a little, for a little quick sec. Um, for anybody who doesn't know, which I didn't, um, A Star Is Born, uh, in its various forms, uh, surrounds some sort of you know industry insider type in this case it's um like a he's an actor he's in the studio system he's kind of got it going on but he's a bit on the down you know he's a bit of a lush and um you know they come across this up-and-coming talent who's truly incredible and kind of blows them away and they sort of insist upon getting them that opportunity to show off their talent uh and get a shot at you know big time celebrity getting to do what they want in this case it's esther who's judy garland's character and she's a singer in a band and james mason's character norman Maine uh just can't shake this feeling gives her this big impassioned speech of like no you have a talent you need to chase this opportunity that i'm giving you and uh he was right meteoric rise to fame and um 
that sort of goes at odds with his like sort of downward trajectory, even despite their later marriage and things like that. And the story tracks the rise and then fall of that relationship and how it operates in that system of fame is essentially what we're dealing with here. In this particular case, there's several extended musical numbers throughout and, um, that's kind of the gist of it. There's no need to belabor it too much as it's fairly straightforward in that respect. It's interesting in that a movie that feels so grand, the cast itself is fairly small and you feel like you're very much keeping up with everybody, uh, especially considering this movie's, I swear to God, 90% Judy Garland. Yeah. It's one of the most like put the movie on your back performances, especially just in terms of like she's in like every scene in this movie's three hours <laughs> like um but i don't want to get too ahead of myself here i don't i never go first when this question's asked but we have a lot of ground to cover so i figured let's just get to this let's just get to this now and uh liam i think you're the one that we're wondering about i always go first it's an honor <laughs> and a privilege and i will not take it away today you guys are always so interested i want to know liam Yes, Do me sir. a favor. Yeah. Tell me what you thought about A Star is Born, please. I I quite like this movie. Quite Fuck liked yeah. it. Um, I, when I joined this here call before you listeners started listening, um, I heard Mitch and Corey just, you know, conversing, doing a little behind the scenes stuff. I didn't know you were I didn't know you were here. We I did, and then I told uh, you that and, and I, I still kept going. And I snuck on in, and uh, Mitch had he was saying to Corey that uh, he thinks Liam, being me, Liam is gonna like this movie, but he's gonna think it's too long. And you're not, uh, it's, it's you're not <laughs> off the mark, Mitch. But maybe I felt that not in the way you're thinking. I don't think this movie is too long uh, in terms of general running time, what it has to say, the story being told. I think it necessitates all of that. I mean, the 2018 A Star is Born is also pretty long for a modern movie. I think it's like two hours and 15 minutes and then they released an extended cut that's two and a half hours. Um, and I think this is a, a really nice movie to settle into and, and be along for that whole ride. I think it's a really grand story. Um, and so I don't think it was too long in that sense. But I do think that there are some scenes in this movie that are too long uh, for me. I thought they just that I, I, at that point I got it and I was ready to go on to the next scene and and do something else. So. I'm not saying that those scenes should have then been cut down and then the movie would be shorter. I think it'd be fine if those scenes were cut down and then we had something else in their place and the length stayed the same. Um, but there are some pacing issues for me where I was just, uh, I was thinking this could be going a bit more smoothly to, to keep me uh, feeling what I think I'm supposed to be feeling um but beyond that i think there are so many amazing amazing scenes in this movie both uh how they're acted how they're written and how they're shot there's some stuff in here that is just like so impressive for the 50s it's like i i am so not well versed in 50s movies but even just comparing this to like prisoner of zenda which we watched 
two weeks ago and it came out two years prior to this movie it feels like there's like a decade in between these things um the way that the some of the these shots look like it doesn't seem like it's shot on a soundstage with like a bunch of costumes the way that prisoner of zenda did it feels a lot more uh a lot more grounded in reality right from the very beginning where we see these shots of uh hollywood people like crowding around on a street for for an event and all these lights and stuff like that looked like it was like out of taxi driver or something um and so right from the beginning i was like oh man this this feels cool uh, immediately i'm not super out of my depth and i think it maintains that momentum for a lot of that first act where there's just stuff in there that just like felt so real to me and i was really digging it i and i really dig the end i really dig a lot of stuff in the middle so really just as we as we keep talking i'll point out some of the stuff that that brought it down a bit for me um but it's the kind of movie that i would absolutely watch again and i wouldn't be surprised if my thoughts on the scenes that i felt dragged um if my estimation of them changes and i like it more i i can really only see this movie getting better rather than worse and and right now i i, I like it quite a bit so and that's where i'm at yeah that's great <laughs> i'm glad um, what a relief <laughs> yeah, mitch, mitch is like off he's off the ledge now <laughs> i was ready to throw hands um <laughs> well hey we haven't got to Corey yet we're not clear just oh yet. that's true that's true okay gotta get my i will say when liam thing. started going and um you started complaining that some of it was too long like certain sequences my instant thought in my brain was if you're talking about born in a trunk being too long i'm gonna fight you <laughs> so <laughs> well when that during that sequence i believe judy garland found out she was pregnant and uh like she, oh, so wow. she's so she's like genuinely like really like happy and like yeah dude uh, that, I think whole, it, yeah. that whole thing that starts with born in a trunk is like 13 or 14 minutes but it's like bulletproof anyway i really like this movie um really really liked it i i wish i hadn't had to watch it under duress um you know just uh rushed schedule and exhaustion i would have liked to maybe soak it in a little bit more i finished watching it like an hour ago <laughs> and i would have liked some time to sit with it but um no it's ex it's exceptional um everything clicks even the stuff that feels uh not extraneous because extraneous is a word that has negative connotations when it comes to saying that something's too long i don't think any of this is extraneous but um even stuff where i would roll my eyes if it were in a different movie i'm all for it here i think technically it's a marvel i think performance wise it's a marvel i think it really understands what it's trying to get across and succeeds um i think maybe it's slightly too friendly <laughs> to the norman main character but i fucking i teared up at the end yeah it, so, it, it really is tragic it's a got tragic me right sleep. in my heart there's so uh, much to love here did did you know that that was how it ended Corey? had you ever no. picked that up from the original i mean from the from when the modern one came out well no i never saw them. the only thing i know about the modern one is those fucking memes That's no it. no no i know you hadn't seen it but you said like you you got the general plot from when it came out so yeah I was well i got if the that plot. included the ending yeah like I, the gist of it was just like oh he's, he makes her famous but he's having a bad time like that was basically it 
Um, even yeah, he, he makes her famous. Is he has a really bad time. Yeah, he does. Yeah, and he yeah. walks into the sea at the end. Um, <laughs> Spoiler. <laughs> but uh, no, that really, yeah. Um, it's really good. It's really really good. <laughs> Cinemascope, baby. Yeah, it's again like Cinemascope Technicolor. Even though it's these big grand sweeping vistas, like like you said, like with the small cast. But it's like a deeply personal movie, and like they somehow make the cinemascope feel really intimate in like the interior scenes, especially with James Mason deteriorating, um, where he's listening to them gossiping about him at their Malibu home, and he's just sort of like in bed, like almost like a child, and you see his his facial expressions. It's so heartbreaking, and I think the big sort of cinemascope style. I think you wouldn't think it would work; it would be too big and too grand, but it 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 works for those intimate interior scenes as well. Uh, so Mitch, are you telling me you like this movie? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I loved it. The f- <laughs> I, I really liked it the first time I saw it. Like, I think the first time I saw it, I was probably like, yeah, like, like I really like this. Like three and a half, four stars out of five. But like having seen it again, like I'm, I'm way more down with it. Yeah, I was um, caught off guard, almost with the degree to which I liked it. Um, I watched it in two chunks. The first time I watched the first roughly 40 minutes and then I watched the rest of it. And after that first 40 minutes, I don't know where I was necessarily at. Um, I didn't like it, but I just, I guess I wasn't sure how it was going to come together. Mm -hmm. And Uh, we've, we've all talked in the show about how much we like movies that are about movies. And I oh think, my god, baby! Th- if you want to watch a picture about the films, yeah, yeah, this is this no is further. this is one of the ones. Like in the fifties, there was like a, a big stretch of sort of like big budget movies that were very cynical about Hollywood. Uh, like you have Sunset Boulevard by Billy Wilder and In a Lonely Place by Nicholas Ray, and oh, then what th- a film, yeah, what a film! And uh, again, this is just a grandiose sort of Technicolor Cinemascope vehicle that is just like sweeping and epic and tragic and covers a lot of ground it's funny to think of like this being the story and it being cynical about hollywood and recognizing that behind the scenes of this film likely the exact same stupid bullshit was happening oh, in real life. like certainly like when when wilder made sunset boulevard in the 50s i'm not sure who stood up maybe it was jack Warner. No, i don't think it was jack warner but it was some producer who stood up and was furious and like walked out and started shouting at the screen like this is your town you bite the hand that feeds you um <laughs> jack warner seems like a real prick <laughs> i don't think that was jack warner but yeah jack warner was a prick and you know louis b mayer all those guys a bunch of assholes um yeah uh where do you even start with this um so the only other movie I've ever seen Judy Garland in uh, is The Wizard of Oz. Really? Which, I, I think as far as I'm I think aware, that's the same for me too, Corey. Yeah, maybe me, me I mean, in St. Louis. <laughs> I can't say that I've I've taken that one in. Maybe after the podcast, Mitch. I've I've also seen the movie that they made about Judy Garland um, right. a couple of years ago. Is that called Judy? It might have been called that. I actually don't remember. The Pirate, 1948, great sort of swashbuckler musical. Can't say I saw that one. Songs by Cole Porter? Unfortunately, no. But what I would like to say... I think he's just making these up. No, I'm not. To the credit of Judy Garland is that she puts in like... And I'm I'm not even exaggerating. Like one of the best 
performances I think I've ever seen in anything. It's heartbreaking to see. Yeah, it's a, a really sad performance. And well, and I know that like I'm a I'm carrying the context that I have from a different movie about this person's life into this. I recognize that. But like recognizing parallels between Judy Garland's lived existence and what's happening with the character or what would be happening with the interiority of that character and like just seeing it on her face perfectly communicated or in the the shake of a particular word in a given line it's there the entire time the elation of the beginning of the recognized talent to the to the the non-stop sort of bustle of getting into the industry the lows of dealing with not just norman but her own career and the stresses of that just it's all there compacted into this one performance meanwhile she's singing constantly and dancing and running around and doing all kinds of crazy shit and it's just non-stop it's like she couldn't switch it off if she wanted to it's amazing <laughs> yeah and like it's it's interesting too because like she was having like problems like in her mm -hmm. life at this particular like point like she... and knowing that is probably informing it mm -hmm. gives it this weird like ironic twinge too yeah like that's she like had, sad and i don't know yeah she had already like by this point again like when she started working on the wizard of oz like in in 39 um like the studio bosses gave her like all she was very young and the studio bosses gave her all sorts of drugs to keep her going on like a wild mm -hmm. schedule and those addictions sort of haunted her for the rest of her life and uh by the mid 50s like she was getting sort of difficult to work with by the 60s i mean when she made i could go on singing with dirk bogard um apparently she was like absolutely she was brilliant like as an actor but monstrous on the sets and uh everybody in the cast and crew on the first day they all called her judy but by the end of the week they began referring to her as the creature when or, or and then it was oh and then it was when is it is it coming in to show is it going to be here um and it's it's really sad just to sort of see how you know show business can do that to a human being and those impossible schedules and and it, uh, you, so, you see that in, in this role and this it's in this, it's so yeah. unfair that <laughs> we can take this in and enjoy it and be marveled by it and recognize that but the reality is just that like the industry true truly truly fuck chews people up and just spits them out entirely and mm -hmm. i know this is a reflection of that to an extent but also just knowing that it's also actively happening as you're watching the movie that you're watching in reality mm -hmm. is uh difficult but it carries a lot of weight into the movie that i think lifts it hugely and judy garland is like from the smallest of moments to the biggest of them it's like such a fucking revelation yeah and, and i know look i'm not the first person to get in front of a microphone and say judy garland's great i know i'm late to the party here but yeah. Like... <laughs> yeah i mean i i think she was married to vincent minnelli at this point and they had they had liza minnelli that's their their daughter actually um yeah so kind of kind of like interesting interesting woman very difficult life but like what a what a like a, a a presence and what sort of a chemistry that she has with james mason and james mason of all people 
it's kind of interesting, but their their affection towards one another feels really sincere. And and in like the scenes where I don't know, James Mason is like cooking and he's going down and she's comforting him. It is really, really touching and really, really beautiful. And something about it feels very modern too, even though it is sort of like fifties domesticity. Like there, I think it's like the the emotion and the affection that they have seems seems real like it's yeah well yeah. they give they give the characters a few opportunities to like um share responsibilities in a way that definitely sort of uh begrudges contemporary gender roles at least slightly mm-hmm. which kind of plays into that a little bit because he's so fucking just out of it that um i know in a lot of cases obviously that requires uh esther to sort of like put her shit on hold but yeah, seeing like the cooking or the cleaning up or whatever is like it does do a bit of an interesting flip, however briefly. I do gotta say that I do think I know that it's a testament to the affection that they have for one another, but I feel like Norman Maine does get a bit of a pass in this movie, despite the fact that he literally walks into the ocean out of guilt. I don't I don't know. <laughs> like like what would you like what more would you like to see done to him? I don't I, I, think I don't he's... know. This I I just finished this movie. these are preliminary ideas. Okay. Um Part of my initial thought was I feel like, I don't know, he spends so much, he spends a lot of the movie either focused on the work of it all or just languishing and demanding kind of a degree of help, whether through his own just uselessness at times or anything else. It's true, um, but I, I like I don't know. I get I, that that's crucial too. I'm not saying it's bad either. I'm I'm just these again, don't feel like you have to defend it necessarily to like some sort of assault. Um <laughs> I I could come around on that. And I I certainly don't find it to be an outrageous negative. I just think that there are aspects of it where it's like, man, we're giving fucking Norman Bain a little bit more leeway here than maybe I'd expect. But um, I think maybe in the start of the film, that's, that's true. But I think, I think near the end, he's just like a husk of a, of a man. And like, it's, it's just so sad to see like what happens to him. And I have a lot of empathy for, for his sort of character. And I too love drinking in robes. (laughs) 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 No, but I, I mean like just to, I don't know. I, I just think like, yes, like he's sitting there and he's, he's feeling sorry for himself and he's not, pulling himself up but i don't know like he's just on like this visage this vicious sort of collision path with with like his his own self he's his own worst enemy yeah no of course i agree with that and i think that's clear yeah i just i had a few thoughts sort of scurry across my mind that felt that way but um like i'm i'm no libby (laughs) the scene where he where he finally gets out of the out of like rehab or whatever and and uh even the scene when he's in and his and his agent goes to visit is really tragic but when he's at the racetrack and he's greeted by jack carson's character and again jack carson i think is also gives a really brilliant performance uh and jack carson punches james mason right on the on the chin in that scene and he says you know i was never your friend like i always was cleaning up messes for you and then like that's true but i don't know it's just it's just like a really sort of yeah uh, like like i said i'm no libby yeah like I said, um, uh, sorry, go ahead. I found that James Mason's character uh, was also, uh, my, my perception of him was also informed by what little I know about Judy Garland, too. I think what makes this movie so impactful is the way that it's it deals with uh, success and depression and how those two things uh, 
when combined can can be so destructive and um it's such an interesting juxtaposition putting these two characters together one character uh Judy Garland, who is finding success in the industry, but also feeling all those early lows that come as you're getting as you're getting moved around and belittled and stuff. And then James Mason, who uh, has had all all those lows as well. And now we're starting the movie. He's getting a high, just like Judy Garland is at the same time because he has picked out Judy Garland and now he's excited that he's going to give her a career, but then he can't actually escape his past, his addiction. And um, that made me think of what must, what might've happened to Judy Garland as well, because um, this was like her comeback movie in the mid fifties. Right. But then like you guys just said, she went on to do more movies. She was doing movies in the 60s. And despite her having done this amazing performance that that communicates that she has confronted a lot of these things, uh, that's not exactly how it works. I mean, you can you can realize these things, but it's it's a different thing to actually just be able to overcome them just like that just because you you did a little movie about it and um yeah but i mean it, it's true like in 15 in 15 short years she would be dead of a barbiturate overdose in london right so right it's, it's, yes it's just it's terrible and that little anecdote you gave mitch uh, that movie she did in the 60s where people are calling her the creature and stuff like and that's it. sort of how people that's how people are like sort of uh um treating james mason near the end of this movie as well where like he's had his little comeback bringing judy garland to the limelight and and he's respected for a little bit but then uh because he's not able to uh overcome his addiction or or his depression um he's just looked down upon again and he's punched to the floor and he's just beaten down and made to feel like a burden and i can't help but think that that was sort of prescient as to what judy garland went through after this movie as well so both of their character arcs really really impacted me Mm -hmm. and just like this the scene at the oscars right where like first of all like they're in the coconut grove and it's just so lavishly shot and it's interesting to see sort of like the nature of celebrity in the 50s too i think that's one thing that that this franchise is great for is seeing like the changing nature of celebrity as as time goes on yes yeah yeah but um that scene at the coconut grove like where he goes on stage and makes a like that's just heartbreaking and the silence in that sequence is is deafening and he opens his arms in a big gesture and accidentally hits Judy Garland in the face and it, you just feel his anguish like i don't know like if any of you like i've like i've embarrassed myself like publicly after like drinking too much or done something yep. i done something i shouldn't have right and it's i don't know like i i i nothing on that scale but i mean like i i feel that like very much and that sort of like that sort of emotion and and it's uh it's it's just heartbreaking to see uh, to these characters i keep using the word heartbreaking but i I'm, it is I'm heartbreaking yeah. it is and i mean um it's just it, there are so many things you could point out that really like tie the whole experience together there are so many individual things that really work um gestures from characters there are little scenes or things like that one thing that i actually really like that uh 
I don't know if it's probably a super notable thing. Um, I saw it in one other letterboxd review. I was skimming a couple and I saw it in one other place. Uh, when they're driving to the test screening for uh, her film and she's so nervous that they pull over and she just walks and pukes and gets back in the car. But the way it's shot is just like such a fascinating choice. The like silhouette pulled back. There's like an oil thing, mm-hmm. whatever those are. Um, yeah. Just a really great and shot. Like an oil derrick or whatever. They're yeah. Called. yeah. Uh, I think my f- one of my favorite things that sticks out to me, I think this was in the first half. Must have been, yeah. Um, something that I really love and really kind of boils down a lot of what the movie is largely focusing on, and especially with this system, the capital S kind of system here, is when she's on contract now and she goes in, they want to learn more about her to get her sort of situated, but she's just getting rapid-fire kicked around from person to person they all have the same cooked line ready it's just the glad to have you with us and mm-hmm. then they're like oh go see this person go see that person they carry around the whole thing she goes she sees fashion people she gets stuck on a photography set she sees libby she's taking to see niles she's in a screening she can't get out blah 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 this and that and then she ends up back outside at the same gate to pub publicity um at a staircase that was directly adjacent to the staircase that she walked up after following through like a turnstile gate, just cyclically turning through that. And it was just like this perfect encapsulation of just actively being chewed up and spat out. Yeah. Uh, revolving door. Really, yeah. Really good. Um, that oh, along with the name change being so close to it. Mm. Ooh. Oh, like, and it's like, oh, I, I guess, shit. I guess I'm Vicky Lester now. Like, no, no, saying it, no, nothing. But no. that's how, that's how it was in those days. Yeah, um, Judy Garland's not her name. No, <laughs> like even in real life. No, like that's she that, can't I, escape I didn't this know shit. that. Oh yeah, her name was uh, F- Gum. Her last name was Gum. I think Judy something. Gum. No, 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 something else. Yeah, Hang on. her name was Francis Gum. Yeah. Wow. So like everybody had their names changed in Hollywood in those days. That was just what what you did. And uh so there's just like there's just it has so much to say about like the nature of, of show business at that time and I think I think it it doesn't quite go to like the depths you could go because like there was a lot of really dark shit that we could get into but I'm not I'm not gonna but I mean it 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 just really covers that ground like pretty well. And uh yeah. Um, can I be indulgent and talk about another thing that I really like? By all means. Great. Thank you. Um, during the test screening, when you get that, uh, born in a trunk extended medley (laughs) thing, um, the part where she's going, she gets in this like elevator that's full of mannequins and it's got this great white and red, like surrealist is an overused word and it's not quite surreal that's not the word i want but it's got a very stark very colorful look i noted that it reminded me of uh uh seijin suzuki just tokyo drifter tokyo drifter um and that persists through it but and she's like doing all these costume changes and doing like a scooby-doo running between the doors and going and seeing executives and just talking about like hey you've been taking advantage of me and making money when do i get to get something out of it 
Yeah. And the answer is never, except for the guy who is clearly some kind of sex pervert that she has to run away from. But it's all done in this like pastel, bright color wonderland divorced from even the reality of the movie. Like it's a set within a set within a set and it looks spectacular. And it's another great example of highlighting how, um, how much Judy Garland had to do for this fucking role. Like she's running around, she's jumping on stuff. She's singing, she's dancing, she's tap dancing. She's fucking happy. She's sad. It's so demanding, but it all comes off so effortlessly that it's like, it's just kind of unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It love is. it love it the the mizzen scene and just like the 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 color palettes and and everything about this movie and the way that it looks is just like exhilarating it's 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 a real feast for the eyes i really love like the i guess it's location shooting on like on like the streets of hollywood and like all the bright yeah. co- colorful lights at night like that's some of my favorite photography in the movie and like liam was talking about the premiere and and all of that but God, it's it's just such a a feast for the eyes, and like the opening set piece where Norman Maine is drunk at that premiere, and oh, there's everybody's dancing around in costumes, and people are riding horses on stages, and he's just drunk and running amok. It's and everybody's trying to stop him from going on stage, like that that sequence and the the cinemascope. I think just it's a feast for the eyes, and it's it's. Uh, I would love to see this movie projected. What is cinemascope? It was just like a widescreen format that was introduced in the in the fifties, sort of to uh, combat the popularity of television because movie going just sort of dropped off. I'm not joking. Think of it like IMAX for us. Yeah, so it <laughs> just lets the screen be wider than yeah. what people are used a, to. A big widescreen format that was sort of meant to to fight against television and, and get people into theaters, and it was sort of big. you had a bunch of sort of things of that. Like you also had like Cinerama. Oh yeah, we and, did. <laughs> uh, like a, a few other things that that were Cinerama was more of a novelty, but like, uh, but these Cinerama these, was three screen, three theater screens wide, basically. Yeah, it was like a panoramic view. Like, watch how the West was one. If you want a good example of that, that movie <laughs> fucking slaps. That movie fucking slaps, dude. Great western, and who isn't in that movie? But yeah, yeah. So it's it's just like a widescreen format that became popular in the fifties. Um, so did Cinemascope stick around and they just stopped calling it that because eventually like movies and theaters like they're all widescreen right and then IMAX is like extra it's not like they went back to being like television sized no I think Cinemascope like Cinemascope cameras like use like special sorts of lenses like I think they maintain like the the widescreen tradition but like Cinemascope was shot I think normally in Technicolor and and uh, there are some precise boxes you have to check to yeah it's, it's a particular sort of aspect ratio and yeah it's it's uh it's cool though it's very cool yeah. it is cool yeah there's so much shots in in this movie that why just, why like, did we never get a slasher movie shot on cinemascope that's what i want to know i would love that that would be fucking oh no, not gosh. joking that would be sick as fuck that or um a slasher shot entirely on anamorphic lenses where everything looks real wide oh Dude. i mean i mean the, those those like, there's horror movies shot with that i mean also like Dario Argento when he shot Suspiria that was like yeah, one of the last movies in Italy shot in Technicolor but, but the whole movie <laughs> true do the whole movie like that um <laughs> but yeah um I feel like we're really bowling over Liam here yeah uh, sorry 
Well, what can I say? Let me I'll, let me tell you about uh, the stuff I really really liked in this movie. I'll do I'll do some indulgent stuff as well. My favorite scenes in the movie were pretty much across the board interactions between my man Ernest Gubbins and uh, <laughs> of course um, Vicky Lester, aka Esther Bobget Blodget. Esther Blodgett. Um, like th- their initial meeting first in that sequence Mitch was talking about where uh, people are trying to keep Norman, a.k.a. Ernest, from stumbling onto the stage drunk. And he ends up getting there. And then Judy Garland's character has to she like thinks on her feet and incorporates him into the show. And um, so she's dancing with him while she's singing and stuff. I just thought that that was like. I could see her gears turning in her head and then f- her wit to be able to turn it around. And I think both both actors just like played that so realistically. And then after that, we have a scene uh, like backstage where James Mason says that uh, he he like professes his love for her in, in his state. And he like draws a little heart on the wall with lipstick and um it just all that stuff like felt so so real to me and and there's a scene where he's complimenting her on her singing and she's like being all surprised and modest about it and that's just like so amazing especially for someone like Judy Garland who at this point is oh my gosh like a decade and a half removed from the massive success of of Wizard of Oz to be able to tap into that and and feel like she's just starting out and just getting praise for the first time um I I absolutely loved that and so basically all their like little talking interactions or even their physical interactions like when Norman uh, crashes the Oscars like not only is it heartbreaking because uh, you can imagine making a fool of yourself in in front of so many people like that doing something that in the morning you're going to regret but also you can see the the love that Esther has for him but also just like the frustration I mean she's embarrassed for him she's not embarrassed for herself she's not at least she doesn't seem it in that moment it's not like she's embarrassed that he's crashing her oscar speech she's embarrassed because she loves this dude and he still hasn't been able to overcome these things that are troubling him and so i just absolutely loved like all those scenes where they were just in a relationship Mm. and their relationship is developing and cracking and like i i really i really love romantic movies and i love seeing relationships uh blossom i mean probably why i love love island and so uh, (laughs) i i i I loved all that stuff and so then when the relationship eventually falls apart without actually falling apart i mean the relationship is so strong that esther says in confidence that she's gonna have to to stop her career in order to take care of Norman and he overhears this and there's this long shot of him like lying in his dark bedroom overhearing the conversation and the stuff that he does with his face there is like comparable to uh what Timothy Chalamet does at the end of Call Me By Your Name, where the camera just like lingers on his face and you can see him going through all A these comparison emotions. after my own heart. <laughs> I, I, I think that that's uh, Norman Maine does the same thing there. And it's just like amazing acting. And it makes the 
his ultimate decision to end his life, like it communicates that without any words, really. It's just all visual. And I absolutely felt it. And so I just think both of them are like totally on top of their acting game. And I think the writing does them a whole lot of favors, like to have that shot where he is just listening and then you just have to watch his face. Like that takes a lot of confidence as a filmmaker to make that be the way he figures out and not have him like overhear the conversation from around the corner of a living room and then he has to like walk into the room and pretend everything is fine. Instead, we're seeing him hear it in a private place in his bedroom where he's able to react in the most genuine way possible without anyone else seeing him. And so you see exactly the way he must be feeling. Um, So there is like so much stuff in this movie that is just really, really going to stick with me on a character level. I think it's a, it's a really great uh, character piece. Like it's almost, you guys know, I love coming of age movies and, and it has that quality to it. And so I loved all those, all those little uh, character based scenes. Yeah. And it's also just speaking to like there to the romance point, there is just like the unbroken love between them to the point where she's not like, oh, this guy's destructive. I just need to get out of here. She's like, no, I'm going to put my entire life on complete hold Yeah, to try to help this man who is clearly not, struggling. Not willing to help himself. Deeply. Right? Yeah. Or maybe well, he wants to, but he, he can't. It, perhaps he does want to, and then, you know, either he gets kicked while he's down, as he says at that horse race, or, um, you know, he just can't muster it. Um, yeah. Uh, Man, yeah, I like. I don't think there's a single thing in this in this movie that doesn't connect exactly as they think it should. Yeah, I think I think like the the greatest tragedy is how this movie was cut, um, and the fact that you don't really see like the you don't see enough of the relationship sort of blossoming, especially in the early half with the stills. Like, I want to see what they did on that boat trip. Like, I want to yeah, see. I'm so I'm so mad that that's. I'm not so there. mad. Like, <sighs> fuck. Like, it's such. It's a loss. It's a it's an Picture immense loss. Picture how much better an already great film would be having that. They're like this fucking weird, the weird sepia, fucking movie maker slideshow is not enough, man. Like, and like throw away like slip slits of dialogue. Like, no, man. It's really unfortunate because um, it feels like it feels like at parts, like especially in the earlier half of the relationship, that that something is missing. Like, and um, yeah, hundred percent. And I think. I think like afterwards another another thing that I really love about this film is like it shows to you like not only what happens when a star is born but what happens after a star dies and sort of that star's reputation and what people thought about him you already you see what these people think about him when he's alive but after he's dead it's it it's very cynical cuz you kind of see how people you know turn on their heels when somebody is die, dies and they they're not going to say he was a mean son of a bitch like he was a he was a treasure we're all very sad like the it's it's interesting to see how that sort of that dynamic also works and i think that that works really well as, as like god the scene where she's mauled at the funeral by fans oh my god that's fucking, that's traumatic ugh. to watch oh yeah that's, that's really upsetting scene. yeah and like you just know that that's exactly like that there is a disconnect between the lived reality of like actual people who exist of course and yeah. people being on that pedestal and this is not a novel idea that i'm saying of course but 
and just like the disconnect that exists there though just like is such a lapse in humanity for when people are going through something traumatic like that never mind the underlying trauma that exists for the entire remaining story of this film and what happens to these people despite the fame and success um yeah i was gonna say something and i'm trying to remember what it was yeah that scene that scene i somehow i had forgotten about that scene but when i saw it again like my god like the the expression on her face and you you know that that's something that she had to deal with like on a day to on a day-to-day basis is being sort of mauled by fans at really inopportune times and i know during the shooting of this film like this doesn't have to do with like her her stardom but she i mean she became very insular in her life because of that um and like she was also being like heavily scrutinized at the time of the shoot, like for her, for her weight, because like the, the shooting of this movie took place over like a, a fairly long span of time uh, because Judy Garland was again, like a, a difficult sort of actress to work with. Um, and so it, it, it took over like a large span of time and her, her weight fluctuated greatly because she had found out that she was, you know, pregnant at the time and she was being scrutinized by, by that too. So there's all these other, the idea that she did all of this while pregnant is truly fucking. Yeah. Beyond. It, was, it was fairly early. Right. But um, <laughs> yeah. Cause I think she gave birth. I'm not sure when I think in 52, I don't know if she did or if she didn't, but I know she found out she was during this. this scene. I feel like you definitely shouldn't be wearing corsets when you're pregnant. No. No, that can't be great. Definitely um, not. I do feel like the Norman main character kind of gets his, well, now I know who will come to my funeral moment. He does. Like several times over <laughs> with some of these scandalous acts. Um, for sure. Of just people just rejecting it outright. Yeah. Um, fuck, dude. And yeah, the movie looks great. All the music's fun. Uh, maybe some of it's a little bit racist, but I mean, it was 1954. What can you do? Um, yeah. Uh, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the music, to be honest. Not that I thought the music would be bad, but just, you know, this isn't... I don't watch a ton of musicals. I don't listen to a ton of music from this era. But, you know, right. like when things are good, they're fucking good, man. Yeah, this was a golden age for musicals, too. Like, big budget musicals. Like, An American in Paris and all these other films that Gene, oh Ke- God, this Gene Kelly also, made. And this movie's in the all fucking over La La Land. Yeah. Yeah, like Fuck. it's... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it weird that um, I loved it, but I don't know how much more I could say that doesn't just turn into gushing about segments over and over again? Do you know what I mean? I know what you mean. Yeah, I feel like we've we've covered some ground. It's all good. Like, it's all good. Like, mm. what more do you want me to do? <laughs> um, I like that they sneak away and get married in some fucking ho-dum town, and the, they still almost get recognized, and they just fucking flee. Yeah. <laughs> from, from the panopticon of the studio system where they're always being watched well that was that was also fairly common in those days like when when stars got married they would they would elope and uh and do that because you know limelight really sucks and that's something that this movie really encapsulates yeah this movie makes me never want even a shred of fame yeah and it's not worth (laughs) yeah god well Corey, if you want if you're spent i could i could be a little gremlin and come in and inspire yeah, no. chaos within I think your brain. You, yeah, I think you should point out some stuff that didn't work for you. Yeah, well, the main thing is uh, the Born in the Trunk song. Fuck you! <laughs> yeah, I'm not down with that, Liam. <laughs> what uh, the fuck? I'm gonna, kick, I'm gonna kick you out of the Zencaster. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Um, not enough trunks? 
it's it's not just it's not because of the length uh in particular i I'm think gonna, I, i'm gonna put I, you in the trunk <laughs> i end up i end up feeling the length after a while but it's not it's not uh just by default the length what it is is that i grew so tired of the method of communication that that judy garland has as she's verbalizing these lyrics where for like 15 this the whole thing is like 15 minutes long um, and it's a whole bunch of different songs. It's a medley, but all throughout the the consistent form of delivery is that we're gonna sing a few lines and then we're gonna like drop into a, a spoken word type thing to deliver the punchline of the lyric to to draw attention to what the point of this verse is and this verse is. And I felt like over the fifteen minutes, there wasn't enough variation musically. Uh, in order to justify that length, it it felt like it it had like this pattern that it was doing instead of being a little mini musical in and of itself. And I think that visually it does what it needs to do. There's so much cool visual stuff happening. It feels like uh, um, there was a WWE fight a few years ago between John Cena and Bray Wyatt that was like this wacky little surreal fun house sort of thing that goes from one set to another and your characters are going through different costumes and stuff perhaps inspired by born in the trunk from a star is born because visually there's so much cool stuff happening and so i and i understand the intent of like this is what made her a star it's got to be big and grand but i think that uh, her earlier performance in The Man That Got Away is so much more effective vocally. What she does there, where sometimes she's like, she's uh, yelling at different points and she's bringing her voice down. Um, and it, it felt a lot more dynamic, whereas Born in a Trunk started to just feel uh, like it was it was rinsing and repeating itself throughout that 15 minutes. And it really started to, to grate on me. Unfortunately, because I can tell while I'm watching it, this is like the big thing. This is Judy Garland's moment. This is encapsulating her whole career. This is what's making her character a star. And so I understand the intent all the way through, but it got to me, man. It got to me. Fair enough. You know, I can't, I don't have like a rebuttal, right? Like I can't convince you that you're wrong and you aren't necessarily like that's kind of the beauty of it. Right. But I, I was all, I was all for it. I was, I was down to clown. I liked the kind of repetition of it, but I think more than anything, I was taken away by it visually and also just physically again, like the physicality of the, of the performance that she gives is cannot be overstated. Um, Yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's, it's really fucking good. <laughs> It's 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 a great it's it is a great performance. I'm not I'm not pinning it on her. Yeah, it yeah, might yeah. just be it might just be like a just a uh, a trait of 50s like musical music where that was a common thing to do that little bit of like drop down spoken word. I think that my love for the 2018 version, a lot of that just has to come from like that is more the sensibilities that I'm used to. That music is is more what I'm used to. Like that shallow song, it's only like four minutes long. And I think I totally understand how that made that character a star in that movie. Whereas you're not going to get something like that in the 50s. It's a different 
form Bradley of, Cooper uh, and Lady Gaga are cowards for not making Shallow 15 minutes long. <laughs> imagine, yeah, dude, like, oh my gosh. And I think that that uh, this story is one that I'm totally, like, from now on, going to go to bat for, that I would want to see this movie remade every 20 years or so, because like Mitch said earlier, that as the musical landscape changes and as celebrity culture changes, this story absolutely deserves to be told again. And it's only been two years since the Lady Gaga Bradley Cooper one came out. And I feel like the landscape has already changed enough that like they could already do another remake of this movie that taps more into social media stardom and, uh, uh, like the TikTok boom that has happened over the last few years and stuff. And oh, so yeah. it'll always be relevant. Yeah. And also like, I think like the ideas of like gender and celebrity too, are, are really interesting to see how that's kind of reflected in the different standards as well. For sure. And yeah. before, before we just get off this topic entirely in the IMDB trivia, I, I read this guys and I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, James Mason disliked born in a trunk. Now we got a quote from him. It slows the narrative. Yes, I know that it would make a lovely television special or something like that, but I thought it was out of place at that particular juncture. I mean, I it's a perfectly it was out reasonable of place statement at that particular juncture. And I, I think I gotta. I think I'm with my boy James Mason. I fucking love James Mason. Dude, I wouldn't have even recognized him uh, if you guys didn't like point out his name to me um, and told me that he was in this movie. Because in Prisoner of Zenda, which is somehow two years before this, I, I would have put money on Zenda being years after this movie, just based on like how he looks and his demeanor. But in Prisoner of Zenda, he looks like such a rat bastard. But in yeah. this one, he's like <laughs> he's so suave and cool, and uh, he he seems more like the lead in prisoner of zenda Stuart yeah. granger or whatever so that's a, that's an amazing transformation it makes well, me appreciate his zenda performance much more and in, incidentally Stuart granger was actually sought for the main role of norman Maine in this movie God, he, that, he, that he turned it down a, i don't think that that i don't know no it that, wouldn't have it wouldn't have worked because because james mason's it's sort of he has that sort of like he has that sort of dangerous like polished appeal is a little bit a little bit sort of like he's very refined kind of kind of sexy but also kind of dangerous like and he does he's got he's got such a broad range much broader than Stuart Granger it would have never worked um also I think putting Judy Garland and Stuart Granger in a film would be disastrous because they were both sort of horrible to work with um you would have never got anything done but yeah <laughs> sounds we're, like we're putting Brando Brando and Val Kilmer and Dr. Moreau. Yeah, so I don't know. We're putting you on a boat because we're five. We need you away for five yeah. weeks. God, James Mason is such a diverse actor. Like Crosses of Iron, he's in Mandingo, love it or hate it. He's in like Lolita. He's done. He's done so much and some really controversial work too. He wasn't afraid to touch like anything. He was a fearless actor. I think he's he's really really special. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Star is just like it's crushing but it's also triumphant and huge of scale and just really really good so do we do we rec do we all recommend this movie to like oh all, my all the god i think yeah it's, i think yeah it's sort it of is well topic. worth the time it is well 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 worth the time I, like i think like i haven't seen the most recent version of a star is born but this is my favorite version that i've seen oh yeah liam yeah uh you're asking which one i prefer yeah 
Um, right now, I prefer the the newest one. I figured um, you would say that, but I wanted to see. I think that there are moments in this movie that are better than moments in that movie. Um, but uh, the the few like hard deviations here that lost me. Um, I, I the the newer one doesn't have those, and I, again, I just think that's because it's like a modern movie. Um, yeah, that's fair. I'm really interested to check out the '70s one now to mm-hmm. to see this for, in a different generation. Uh, I I really I really really want to see that one, and then the '30s one. Um, I'm less inclined to check it out just simply because it's older. Mitch, how how uh, how necessary is that '30s one? Uh, I think you could skip it because it, it treads a lot of the same water. I mean, it's it's the it's the same story, um, but a, a different screenplay, but. Um, I don't know if it's like extremely necessary unless you're trying to be like a completionist. But yeah, it, I don't it, really it's... like Frederick. Frederick March was like one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. I think he was, but I don't. I don't really care for his stuff. And yeah, it's, okay. it's, it's not like a fabulous movie. But if you're trying to be a completionist, I say yes, yeah, see it. Like I think it's right. worth it just to see the sort of the the evolution of the franchise. But yeah, it's also interesting that this movie came out two years after Zenda because. Uh, we quoted a critic of the time Zenda came out who commented on Bosley the Carruthers, remake game yeah. that was happening. <laughs> and so now, and then this movie is again a remake of a 30s movie. So it's it's funny to think that in, in 50s Hollywood, they had like reached a point where they were like, all right, we're at the peak of cinema. So now we can dig back into the past and, and liven all these things up. And then the movies they did then got remade many times over so it's it's so interesting how history repeats itself in that way we're always we're always at the farthest point in history we ever have been yeah bosley crothers actually loved this movie by the way ah shit i hate when i want to to read it please one of the grandest heartbreak dramas that has drenched the screen in years he also added the whole thing runs for three hours and during this extraordinary time a remarkable range of entertainment has developed upon the screen no one surpasses Mr. Kukor at handling yeah, that's what a movie is Bosley. at handling this sort of thing. And he gets performances from Miss Garland and Mr. Mason that make the heart flutter and bleed. Can't argue with Bosley today. Shit. No, he's, he's on the money. This movie, both Mason and Garland won Golden Globes and they were nominated for Academy Awards. And the film was nominated for art direction and costume design and I that am is, retroactively mad that Judy Garland did not win the fucking Academy Award for this. Yeah, it's a bunch. It's a crock of, crock of shit. Yeah, and again, like best best song, it 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 was also nominated. Uh, the man that got away. Um, it was nominated for like you know the Judy Garland best best foreign actress at the British Film Awards. Uh, yeah, Directors so, Guild nominated George Cukor for Outstanding Directional Achievement in Motion Pictures. Again, it was nominated for a lot of shit, which makes you think like, how on earth did like, why did they like, why did they cut it? Again, I don't know enough about that. I just know that they weren't happy with the cut and it was released in October. A few people saw the original cut and then they pulled it and then released the recut version in November. So, yeah. Did Best Picture exist back then? It's weird that it wasn't nominated for that. Best Picture existed, yeah, but it didn't win. It wasn't nominated. Huh. Yeah. That's interesting. 
Because normally when something is nominated for all those other awards, actor, actress, uh, art direction, director, costume. Art direction. Yeah, yeah, it, I guess it missed it out did, on It didn't get director, nominated right? for, for director, yeah. No, that was just uh, that was just the Directors Guild of America that, that nominated George Cukor. And, uh, you know, that that is fair because all the, the parts of this movie I am going to remember um, are like the moments between Judy Garland and James Mason. So I, I can understand. Coming and the, away and from the art direction, right? The, right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I understand coming away from it with that in mind. Last last question I got for Mitch is as a, a big fan of the Star is Born franchise, is there any franchise. reason you haven't seen the newest one yet? I just don't watch a lot of modern movies. I mean, I saw the what did I? I mean, I'm I'm getting around to it, but I uh, I will I will see it. Uh, I just didn't. It's funny because like I I made a push to see all the Star Wars Borns movies around the time that the the new one came out because I remember when the new one came out, I was sitting in film class and my film professor was like, "A Star is Born." Like, have you any of you seen the originals? And it was like, "What? I haven't. I didn't even know they existed." So I sought them up, but I never sought out the the newer one. But I think I will. Um, uh, can I ask Mitch one last question? Oh yeah, yeah, I love this. I'm the center of attention. What's your favorite James Mason fit in the in this particular movie? Please. Um, I like his white tie at the start of the film, where he's in where he's in uh, evening wear with the tailcoat. Mine's kind of a joke answer, but I stand by it. It's when he goes to drop in on that uh, recording session when he proposes, and he's in that like yellow sweater with the white shirt under it and the tan pants. Just oh, sure. Max yeah. Cash, ice yeah. fucking cold. Yeah, no, he's, I, I also, I don't know. I feel like the, the the costumes are like, I mean, it was nominated for an award for the costumes, but I think like the the men's costumes in this film are particularly muted. I think as was the for like the, the, the times, right? The 50s was all about sort of stylistic conformity and sort of box yeah. cuts. I'm so, willing to bet there is a degree to which that there was like nuance in stuff you could put that was identifiable in a man's outfit that spoke to their characters mm-hmm. that maybe spoke more to like why you would identify it then like a cultural nuance that yeah. perhaps we're missing if i want to give it a little bit of credit my favorite my favorite judy garland costume is is the one where she's sitting in the back seat of, of or in the front seat of james mason's car when he finds her again after she's performing in that dive bar and uh she uh she's wearing that sort of like blue jacket with like the red piping yeah it, and she's wearing a red shirt i think I think that that's like a, a beautiful outfit. I think I also yeah. love her born in a trunk outfit. Of course, the born in the trunk parts with the hat and those fucking ch- pants that have like a squared like gradient almost to them. Yeah, and the vest. Oh my god, it's so fucking cool. It is. Has has a star been born? Yes, I think the star was born and uh, and be- and died ceremony. clearly. And uh, the star is born, and let's hope the listeners aren't bored. <laughs> A star <laughs> is bored. Um, so, <laughs> me like to, watching born in a trunk. I'd like to make a proposition. I'd like to see what uh, what what old Willie Willie Cass. Oh my gosh! No time. way! Oh, After dear. the three hour movie, you're ready for it again, Corey? There could I, be some. There could I be a four hour movie on it this could thing. Be. I hope we, it's another pick that I put on there. Shall we? Shall we? Oh boy! Spin the spin the fucking wheel. How spin many it. things we got on there, Liam? Let's do it. All right. Quick before we change our minds. <laughs> well, I've got uh, my nerve. <laughs> let me just make sure. Give spin! me a scotch. Give me a scotch bartender. Uh, make it a double. <laughs> Oh, gotta dear. remove Star I'm going back to the sanitarium. <laughs> oh dear. Okay, there's three hundred and twenty-four. 
Okay. Okay. Three twenty-four. Again, let's not think about it too hard, right? Big money. Uh... No whammies. No skeletons either. Yeah. Three, two, one. Spin. Ooh. ooh, ooh, ooh. You like that? Similar territory in terms of number to last week, I believe. Mm. Could be in the same ballpark-ish. We'll have to see. I know that Mitch's picks were interspersed through the list. Unfortunately. I think fortunately, because it gives us weird curveballs like this. True. Uh, I think uh, we could be in for something good. We got 141. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. As I was scrolling through the list, I realized that I had... uh, the prisoner of zelda specifically that was that was verbatim written on the list so let me see what 141 is and then uh and then i'll remove prisoner of zelda we'll see if that changes what 141 is and then maybe we can we can see where we're at have you no respect okay so so 141 right yeah like the band okay so right above 141 we have uh urban legend 2 what the fuck is that? Final cut. Oh no. And one What is that? One forty well, I guess we'll never know. <laughs> and one one forty two was reanimator two. Oh, okay, I would take that for sure. Okay. And now before hey, wait, is, that, I, is that not from beyond? Is that is from beyond a sequel to reanimator or is it reanimator two? Like his own thing? Different thing. Different thing. There yeah. you go. From Beyond is uh, the name of uh, an entirely different uh, science fiction, like. But same movie. director, same guy. Right, right, Actor, right, right. Yeah, yeah. but okay, different, yeah. different little franchise there. Right. Okay. Sure. Okay. So now, before I reveal one forty-one, let me get rid here of the prisoner of Zelda. Zelda. <laughs> and uh, I'll just Rabbit see if season. that changed anything. It might not even change it because of its position on the list, but. Just for an accurate reading. Okay, I've I've taken out prisoner. I've taken okay, out okay. The prisoner. So what that did, everyone, very interesting, my automated list here. That made Reanimator 2 141. So what our choices are on. between Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, go ahead. I think you're gonna do what I was gonna say. Our choices today. are between the now current 141, Reanimator 2. In fact, it just says Reanimator here, so we could pick any of those sequels, but might as well keep it simple i guess reanimator 2 or the original 141 had i not noticed the prisoner of zenda which would have been freaky friday from 2003 my votes for reanimator 2 yeah me too well that's it reanimator 2 cool that settles it I haven't seen the first one, but I've seen some clips, and it seems pretty fucking cool. I have no idea what it's about, and I don't want to know. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's leave it then. Uh, Mitch, do you want to plug anything? Do you want to sing anything? Does Jay Mason have anything he wants to plug? I would like to... um... (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) No. I would like to. It just walks away. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> what about you, Liam? 
Yeah, nothing that good. Um, I was recently on an episode of a podcast by uh, my friend in the horror community. His podcast is called Freaks and Psychos, a disability and horror podcast. And I was on there talking about my job writing described video for movies and TV shows. So if you're interested in uh, that work I do, horror movies, disability and horror movies, accessibility um and we also talk about the described video on netflix for the movie gerald's game so if you're interested in any of those you can find that uh at freaks and psychos the disability and horror podcast and also you can find me on twitter and letterboxd uh where i write under my alias graham the haunted marshmallow and the username for both of those is graham the mallow i can't wait to listen to that podcast actually i'm really excited to check that out i think everybody should yeah absolutely Mitch. Thank you, Mitch. Oh shit! I guess it was James Mason that left. James Mitch Mason is still left. here. Yeah, yeah. I, I actually uh, killed him. He's dead on the floor right now. Wow, <laughs> a star is dead. <laughs> one rise, one fall. So Mitch's big break is any day now. That's yeah. pretty exciting. Yeah, and I'm trying um, to take his blood to like you know get in siphon. The and, yeah, siphon. Yeah. Maybe maybe his star power. Reanimator Two is going to be Mitch's big break. He's going to kill it on James that episode. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to reanimate him. <laughs> Bring him back for a Abbott and Costello style routine. Um, well, I don't want to waste any time. Uh, I want Mitch to strike while the iron's hot, so I'll get my plugs out of the way. Um, Twitter at Mr. Corey Price, Letterboxd, Mr. Corey Price. Uh, you can also listen to my other podcast with our friend Neil, MK PodQuest, where we are working our way through the Mortal Kombat Defenders of the Realm cartoon, which is very bad, and nobody should watch it. Actually, when this comes out, we are in part four of uh, a four-part crossover with several other cartoons about a warrior king and his orb. So we're actually talking about Wing Commander. In any case, no matter what we're talking about on that show, MK PodQuest is where you can find it. Thank you all once again for listening to this episode of They Made Another One or the James Mason Podcast, whichever you prefer. You can find us all over the internet on Twitter at They Made Another, all one word, on Letterboxd at TMAO. You can find episodes on Anchor, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Breaker, and everywhere else as they made another one. You can reach us via email at tmaopodcast at gmail.com with recommendations for future episodes, questions, comments, and why Liam should like Born in a Trunk. Our fantastic thumbnail art is done by Jade Dickinson, who you can find on Instagram at Jade Sketches. And next week, bring your corpses because we have some reanimating to do. Hell yeah. Um before we go i mean there's mm. i just realized that there's like a bunch of james mason movies that we love that we didn't mention i just want to like throw out some names please um, north by northwest uh Twenty Thousand leagues under the sea odd man out the verdict which is my all-time favorite legal drama it's one of my favorite movies uh the last of sheila which Corey and i took in oh fuck yeah when i was living in vietnam and uh that movie like rules like it's it's like that's it's, one of my favorite movies that I've seen it once. Fucking great! Like, I ho- I wonder if it's like a remake or something. Or I don't know. I I want an excuse to watch that movie since we're the de facto James Mason podcast now. But bigger than life, great fifty social drama directed by Nicholas Ray. One of the first movies to talk about drug addiction from nineteen fifty six. Um. Yeah, those are just like a few of my faves. I needed to say it, but that's uh, that's it. On they made another one. <laughs> Oh.
okay, what did what did Sean Connery say after he sold his uh, shelf on eBay? What? I shipped my shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that might go in at the end of the episode. I just want you to know that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs>